We had a board meeting for IVNS this uh, past week, and uh, Marie and her helpers put together this uh, short video. We thought it was so good, we wanted you to see it. And uh, <clears throat> for those of you who don't know much about the nursery school, it uh, meets downstairs and in the, in the wing here. That's a little bit of background. Uh, we've got a fair number of people in our congregation who volunteer in different capacities, uh, whether it's uh, we provide some frozen meals for families that are facing challenges, and, and uh, we have afternoon volunteers who man phones and things like that. So uh, that might be something for you to consider if you have some time and want to be involved. How many people uh, in the congregation right now this morning uh, are volunteers or do some kind of volunteer work. All right, we made them all sit on, oh, I thought we made them all sit on this side, but uh, okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great ministry, and uh, you saw a mention of a therapy program. That is, uh, is really focused this year with a couple therapists that come in from the outside and uh, give immediate help to kids that are diagnosed. Uh, we've uh, we've got to we've got to pay some additional money to make that happen, but we felt it was worth it. And if you recall our Christmas project this year, raising fifty thousand uh, dollars, ten percent of that is going toward that therapy uh, program, and the rest is going to our gym renovation work. Uh, <clears throat> glad to say that we are close to the goal on that fifty thousand. We're we're up around 40, just about $47,000. Uh, fund stays open until the end of February, so if you'd like to be part of that and push us over that goal, that would be wonderful. Okay, well, today we're back to our uh, series here, Transformation, Learning to Live in the Kingdom of God. Been on this for a couple of weeks. <coughs> And a quick review of what we've been uh, doing so far. We've uh, looked at the, the message of John the Baptist, the, the precursor to Jesus, uh, summed up in, those, uh, in that short sentence in Matthew's Gospel, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what we've talked about is, the kingdom and transformation then go together. Repentance is about transformation, about change. And, uh, and that's a necessity in terms of what the kingdom uh, requires. Uh, we took a little while talking about this transformation idea uh, further because I think there's a lot of misconceptions in our mind. The most helpful thing to me is to say that transformation is about alignment with the kingdom of God. It's about the changes that need to come into our lives if we are to function in this new reality that God is bringing about in Jesus. <clears throat> uh, you remember that when Jesus talked to the uh, to the Pharisee Nicodemus that he says the first thing you need to know about the kingdom is that you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. Well, that, the idea of being born again is a stunning thing to Nicodemus and it's a remarkable way to state the necessity of transformation as if you could go back and start your life over again. Right? That's, that's what the kingdom demands. And having said that, then, we, we recognize right up front that transformation is hard. It's just, it's just hard. And that is why you and I avoid it <laughs> as much as we can. Uh, and we start by trying to avoid even the idea that it's needed in our lives. I mean, we're okay, right? It's other people have problems, I and mean, we're okay. 
And, and in fact, what we saw is that that was the attitude that the Jewish elite brought to the story with John the Baptist out there in the wilderness. They came out to evaluate what he was doing, and uh, they don't come out to be baptized. They don't make any acknowledgement that they need to repent. Uh, they're going to pass judgment on what John is doing. And so that led us to consider this shame-honor continuum or the, the failure-success continuum. This thing that is a reality that all of us understand. The, uh, the kids on the playground outside my office window in our nursery school, they get this. They, they, they couldn't articulate it, but they get it, <clears throat> and you watch them. These kids, they've got a sense of where they are on that scale. They've got that inner monitor that is reading other people and reading their place. And, uh, you know, think about then grade school, high school, college, and right on through. We're, we're all aware of this. If we, if we perceive that we're, we're moving up or we are up on that scale, then the messages come through to us, I'm worthy, I'm good, I'm acceptable, I'm lovable, I'm in. Or if we perceive the opposite, then I'm unworthy. I'm unlovable. I'm on the outside. Yeah, we know this. And, and so the people of Jesus' day knew it. The Jewish leaders knew it. Uh, they had an estimation themselves, and they had an estimation in, in the view of many of the people of their day that they were, they were successful, given what was seen to be important in their day. They had power, they had uh, reputation, influence, uh, a lot of them had access to wealth compared to the ordinary people, and in their minds that also translated to, uh, to Esteem not only from others and in their own view, but esteem from God as well. That, I mean, that's the way they saw it. If everybody else looks at you and said, you're on top, uh, then pretty soon you start thinking that God probably agrees. Below them, there were the ordinary people who, who they looked down on, uh, as well they might, the people that didn't have their education, didn't have their access to power, and didn't enjoy their wealth. And then at, at the bottom were the sinners, the category of the misfits, the people on the outside of the circle, the, uh, the ones who didn't know the law, and didn't seem to care about it. Tax collectors, prostitutes, shepherds, tanners, all kinds of people fall into that category. And it led us then to, to a thesis, or a principle, if you will, which I'm going to try to lay out a number of these as we move through this series. But here's the first one that <clears throat> seems to me to be pretty important, that the more energy we put into maintaining or improving our position on the shame-honor continuum, the more concerned I am to, to prop myself up and to make sure I'm seen as the good, the righteous, the powerful, you know, all those things that we value, the more energy I put into that, the less likely it is that we will practice repentance and the less likely that we will experience transformation. 
And that makes sense, doesn't it? The more you think you're at the top, I mean, where is there to go? Why change if you're already there? You've invested all this energy into to getting up on the scale. All right. Well, we want to continue now this, uh, this discussion. And we're going to think some more about these, uh, these Jewish elite, the, the Pharisees. And uh, in what we're looking at today, the Sadducees don't get mentioned. The Pharisees are probably the, they're the larger groups, certainly, and uh, the more central to the discussions that Jesus has. So we're going to go to Luke 15. And uh, we're going to think about this, this objectionable, this scandalous idea. This man welcomes sinners. Triple exclamation point. I mean, you can tell that, that when the Pharisees say this, they are deeply grieved and offended. They are scandalized. So we'll read the story. Now the tax collectors and sinners, so you remember the scale? (laughs) Here's the people on the bottom. We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people on the other end, muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And the them is is primarily the Pharisees, right? That's who he's talking. There's good stuff here for the tax collectors and the sinners. But this is really told, directed at the Pharisees. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls all his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He went to uh, Las Vegas. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. See, this is all digging Jewish sensibilities because pigs were unclean, right? And therefore, he's working for a Gentile because a Jew isn't going to raise pigs. So he's working for a Gentile, feeding unclean animals. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But, see, he didn't didn't get the whole speech out. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There's more to that story. We'll look at that uh, probably next week. So, what's going on here? Well, uh, the fundamental thing is that Jesus is challenging the status quo. And the status quo is particularly that shame-honor scale. That's what he's challenging. He's doing it by welcoming sinners. That's what the Pharisees say. He welcomes them. The end of Luke 14 is some teaching of Jesus about discipleship, about following him in to a life lived in God's kingdom and, and what that might look like. And, and he, gives, he gives an invitation uh, right at the end of that, of, of Luke 14, he says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whoever. And now it's right on that then, then in chapter 15, Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. See, the point is, they're the ones with the ears to hear. They want to know about the kingdom. And Jesus' response to them is to say, uh, well, let's Let's sit down and talk about this over a couple beers or beers and brats or whatever, right? They're going to have a meal together, and this offends the Pharisees. Why? Because having a meal in that culture, as in our culture, having a meal together is an extension of hospitality. That's why the Pharisees say he, he welcomes these people. He eats with them. And, and that's offensive because that threatens the status quo. See, the, the Jewish leaders are never going to invite sinners to eat together. Sinners are unclean. They're people to be avoided. And, and you can see what, what this does. It begins to rattle the foundations of the way they've structured their lives, the way these leaders have invested themselves for what? 10, 20, 30, 40 years? They've, they've done all the education in the law. They've cultivated their contacts. They've worked up as far as they could. And now Jesus, who... Many regard to be a teacher who's come from God. He sounds prophetic in what he says. And in their minds, you can hear them thinking this, right? If he were really a teacher who's come from God, who would he want to have dinner with? With us, of course, huh? with the people who have studied the law, with the people who are looking for the coming of the kingdom. 
with the people who have power and influence. Certainly a teacher come from God would want to do that because that's what they would do. And so they assume God would do it. And God's prophets, or on the outside chance that, you know, somebody like this could be the Messiah. That's what some people are saying about Jesus. On the outside chance, who would he want to have dinner with? It's like Jesus has his compass broken or something, his moral compass. He should be going north. He's going south. He can't possibly be who people say he is. You can hear the sense of scandal there. This man welcomes sinners. So it's in response to that, they're muttering that Jesus then tells these uh, three stories. I'm going to call it three stories for good people. <laughs> uh, and I maybe ought to explain because I didn't explain it last week. Last week the sermon was called Why Good People Can't Change. And, and, uh, and a few folks raised questions about that. I, I should have explained it that we're using a term there, good, ironically, right? We're using it for people who aren't necessarily good, but they think they're good. And as long as you think you're good, then you won't think you need to change. And so you won't. That's the problem for good people when it comes to repentance. So we got three stories here for those kinds of good people who say God must approve of us because lots of other people approve of us and we approve of ourselves. So Jesus says, uh, let me tell you these stories. So the first story is a shepherd's story. A shepherd who has a hundred sheep and uh, the sheep are wandering all around, which is what sheep do. You know, they don't pay attention to where they are. They're just looking for the next blade of grass. They're not very smart. I mean, the sheep looks cute there, but it doesn't look smart, does he? I guess not. So the sheep wanders off and gets lost. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to look for that sheep and finds it. And and here's the point. The sheep is lost and the shepherd finds it. And when the shepherd finds it, he calls for rejoicing. He calls his friends and neighbors. There's a celebration because what was lost has been found. So on the one hand, I guess it's the emphasis that the shepherd leaves and is concerned especially about the one, the 1%. The second story is very similar. A woman has 10 coins. She loses one. She loses 10%. Coin probably represents a, a day's wage. She looks high and low until she finds the lost coin. And then, like the shepherd, she too calls her neighbors together and they have a celebration because what was lost has been found. And then there's this much more elaborate story, one of the best-known stories in, in the Bible, about the man who had two sons and... Uh, The younger son says, uh, Dad, I want want my inheritance. I want it now. Of course, most wealth is in, in the ancient world is in land holdings, and that kind of settlement would normally require the death of the father. So the point is made by many people that this is tantamount to saying, Dad, I really wish you were gone. But, but I want mine now. And the father uh, 
says okay, which is pretty remarkable in itself. It says okay, <clears throat> the son takes everything, goes off to a far country, and loses it all. And in the end is reduced to this humble status. You know, if there's somebody that falls into the tax collector and sinner's category at the bottom of the slide, clearly Jesus is telling us the story that this kid is there. But once again, and here, here the emphasis is not on the father seeking the son as much as it is on the son's desperation and willingness to finally hit bottom and turn back. And so he makes the journey home with this uh, story all ready to give to his dad and uh, is shocked to find the father receiving him uh, with great compassion and great joy. And once again, there's a party. So in all three of these instances, there is a party. Remember... Jesus is telling this to people who think that a party is wrong. (laughs) Now, a party for them, that would be fine. But a party for these people at the bottom, no. No celebration, no eating together, no rejoicing. Jesus tells these stories to say to the Pharisees, uh, you are objecting to my extending hospitality and welcome to these people. Do you realize that what I'm doing is a parable of God's kingdom? That when every one of these people turns back, There is celebration. There is divine celebration. It's a remarkable set of stories told directly to confront the attitude of these elites. God celebrates every time. One sinner, Jesus makes the point. When one sinner turns back and commits to to aligning their lives with God's kingdom program, his dream for the world, every time there is rejoicing among the angels, which is another way to say there's rejoicing by God. Quite remarkable. I mean, think about that. Suppose, suppose in all the churches in Satterton and, and Telford today, there is one person who, who turns back. There's celebration in heaven. And, and you know, suppose in... Suppose in Montgomeryville. <clears throat> There's a lot of sinners in Montgomeryville, you know. Suppose just one of them in Montgomeryville turns back. There's more celebration. And, and what about Philadelphia? <clears throat> Maybe there's a half a dozen people in Philadelphia. New York City, lots of sinners up there, more celebration. Think about that in the light of of what the psalmist says when he, he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Such delight God has in seeing people turning back 
And think about a world now in which the gospel has gone to, to the known world. And the people who continue to turn to God from idols, as Paul would say, to serve the living and true God, to align their lives with the kingdom, think of the joy of God. Even when people like you and me turn back, there's rejoicing. And so, here's what we need to say. God is like Jesus. The one who first introduced me to this this statement was Trevor Hudson, who I think is one of the greatest living teachers on spiritual transformation. And uh, it caught me up a little short just when he said it that way because we're, used, we're very used as, as Orthodox or Bible-believing Christians to thinking of it the other way around, right? Jesus is like God. <clears throat> uh, Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And so that even though he's truly a man, he, he's... He's also divine, so, and that has been challenged many times throughout history. So we've gotten used to defending the idea Jesus is like God. Much less commonly do we think of it the other way around, that God is like Jesus. And, and yet it, it makes great sense, doesn't it? That he came to reveal the Father, to reveal the Father's heart. And what we see, not only in the teaching of Jesus, but in his practices. Right here in this hospitality toward sinners. Jesus, or God, is like Jesus. That's what he's trying to tell them as they mutter and complain about what he's doing, about how that threatens to overthrow their understanding of righteousness and their very lives Jesus says, friends, God is like what I'm doing. My welcome toward these people is the welcome of God himself. You can't get much closer to the heart of the gospel than that, friends. Uh, Henry Nouwen's book on the return of the prodigal son has just some very quotable stuff in it so let me quote a little bit here Nouwen says I am beginning now to see how radically the character of my spiritual journey will change when I no longer think of God as hiding out and making it as difficult as possible for me to find him but instead, as the one who is looking for me while I am doing the hiding, can I accept that I am worth looking for? Do I believe that there is a real desire in God to simply be with me? Here lies the core of my spiritual struggle, the struggle against self-rejection, self-contempt, and self-loathing. It is a very fierce battle. And it really is, isn't it? To say God loved the world and gave his only son, that's fairly easy for me. But to say That if God had his desire, he would sit down at table with me and have a conversation. That's a a whole different thing to get into your mind, friends. That's what now and is on to here. And that leads me then to to thesis number two.
the most important contribution I can make to the process of transformation is to allow myself to be loved by God. Because many times when I am invited to the table, I decline the invitation. Do you do that? And, and at the bottom of that is my sense that I am unworthy of the invitation, <clears throat> which is true. But then because I understand that I am unworthy, I make the judgment that God's desire could not really be to spend time with me. Because often at those times, I don't really want to spend time with myself or with somebody like me. And see, that's, that's the, the scandalous thing about God. That's the objection of the Pharisees. This man can't be from God. And once he tells his stories, they're, they're even more incensed by it. So it's only a matter of time before their sense of offense turns into anger and anger turns into violence. And Jesus has to be killed because he threatens the very ground that these people are building their lives on. Well, why don't you think about that thesis, huh? Most important contribution, if we're serious about transformation, is to allow ourselves to be loved by God. How do you do that? Well, Good to think about more on that later. All right, let's, let's take a couple minutes then on, on this other thing that is in all three of these short stories. Something is lost that gets found. The sheep gets found, it was lost. Come rejoice with me. I found what was lost. The coin is lost, it's found. And the son is lost and is found again. How do you think about lostness? Well, to be lost is to be away from home. I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's very clear in the third story, isn't it? It's to be away from home. And if you want to think of this spiritually, and recognize that the father in the story really represents God. <clears throat> then to be lost is to be a person who no longer has his or her home in God. Which is what you're created for. Right? That, that's the Genesis story. You, you were made to dwell with God, in God, in God's home. And that's the end of the story, as Jesus tells it. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to take you there. So, so you have this spiritual home, and to be lost is to be away from home. From the safety and the security and the love and all those things that go into the idea of, of home. The son is lost because he is away from home. To be lost is also then to be disoriented. You drive to a place you don't know. And... Uh, 
your GPS decides to misfunction, or you decide you don't need the GPS, and you get confused, you get disoriented, and now things don't look right. You're out walking in the woods, and it's a place where you haven't been before, and uh, you forgot to take compass, and pretty soon you get disoriented. What do you do? You walk in circles. That really happens, by the way. Those of you who've done some outdoor stuff, you get turned around. Uh, all of a sudden, you, you walk for 10 minutes, and you say, these trees look familiar. It's because you're disoriented. You don't know where you're headed. And to be lost, whether you're a Pharisee or whether you're a tax collector, whoever it is, if you're lost, you're away from home and you're disoriented. You don't know how to make good life choices. Don't know which direction to go in. And that being the case, then, you are in danger. Lostness always involves danger. Danger that might mean you're soon going to be dead. Huh? Think of that, uh, that sheep. Uh, a sheep is so vulnerable to predators. And to be away from the shepherd, to be lost in the wilderness, is to be in danger of predators. What, is, what does the father say? The third story is just a little bit different. All three of them say, you know, come rejoice because this lost thing has been found. But but the added thing in the third parable is, this my son was lost, he's been found, he was dead, and he's alive. He was dead. And then a fourth thing, it was uh, Dallas Willard who helped me to think about this uh, a few years ago, and, and I thought he made a worthy point here, <clears throat> that part of being lost is to be unuseful, useless, <laughs> but to be unuseful, unuseful to God. So here's a couple tools that got lost. How do we know that? Well, they're, they're all rusty. They've been laying in the grass somewhere. As long as they're lost, they're useless. They, I mean, they might be good tools, but they're useless. And, of course, these tools, the, the hammer would still work even though it's rusty, but that's a, what is that, like a wire-cutting tool or something, fencing tool? Uh, even once that gets found, it's probably still pretty useless until it gets taken apart and cleaned up and oiled and all the rest. But as long as it's lost, it's unuseful. To be found is to be shaped to fit into God's kingdom picture, right? Right? Or if you want to change the imagery, to be changed, to be transformed, to repent, to turn back to God is to say, God, I want to be a part of your kingdom work, your great plan, and, and I want to be used by you. I want to be useful. I understand that as long as I go my own way, I'm useless. I'm one of the tools that's been lost. but I'm, I'm coming back on the promise that you will transform me. You'll 
oil up the parts. You will use me in your kingdom. Of course, these images are only partial, right? Because, because entering into God's kingdom is not just becoming a useful tool for God. I mean, if that's all you see, then you miss the fact of God's love and his delight in, in you know, the father doesn't say when the son comes back, oh, great, I got my tool back. Or I got my servant back. That's what the son is thinking. But he says, this my son has returned. Back to life. That's the heart of God. That's why it's called gospel. Good news. Imagine the people at the bottom of that scale. who hear this invitation, whoever has ears to hear. And they say, we want to hear. We, We want what you are talking about, Jesus. And we sense in you this invitation. You're willing even to eat a meal with us. There is hospitality. There's welcome. And we are going to risk to believe that the welcome we sense in you is the welcome of Yahweh himself who wants to sit with us and eat with us. And so, of course, we're willing to be changed and transformed. And I hope that for you and for me, we have that same sense of of course. Of course, Lord. Even though there's some stuff that's hard for me to face, some stuff that's hard for me to talk about, and I know know that part of sitting down to the table is... You know, we're going to talk about some of that stuff. I, I, I know that. But, but the confidence in your love that, that you would seek somebody like me and that heaven, all of heaven, would party because today I turn back. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? Pretty incredible. Let's pray together. Lord, these these are such wonderful stories. And part of the wonder is they, they aren't just stories. They really express your heart for us and the heart of your Father. You really want us to come home. You really want to reorient our lives. to protect us from the dangers of our self-will and our confusion. And you want to give us the, the fitted place and the useful place in your kingdom. But Lord, we, we just have these doubts We're not not sure if your love is as great for us as maybe it is for other people. We're not sure whether stuff of some of the, the junk in our lives 
are, are things that, that you can really handle. We've experienced plenty of rejection in life, Lord, and we fear that if we draw too close, we may be rejected again. Would you send your spirit to us, each of us today, to speak the truth into our hearts? that we might know with deep, settled conviction that we are loved by you. We are sons and daughters that you want to find, you want to clothe with the best garments, and you want to sit down to table and rejoice together. Do this, O God, we pray, for all of us here, for all of our congregation, whether meeting with us here or out there on the internet. We all need this message of your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.